And you are listening to the soothing sounds of Sanatam Kawar, who will be our featured guest today on Vegan Radio. That's right. How y'all doing out there? Obviously, Dirk's feeling a little hyped up again. We're gonna a little have to, hyped up. Scott and I are going to have to watch him because he's, he's literally <laughs> off, off the edge. He's, on the, he's on the, the edge of his seat music, over here. The soothing music is helping me to readjust. Yes. And the soothing music will be this Saturday, March 31st in Northampton at the Helen Hills Chapel at the Smith College. You're getting ahead. We didn't do our intro music yet. Oh, God. I wanted to hear more about Helen, though. (laughs) (laughs) I can't make it. Time for another edition (laughs) of Vegan Radio. You got it right, baby. Oh, my God. Today's show... We're going to talk about the conference that Megan and I just attended, Inadmissible Comparisons in New York City. Isn't that right, Megan? That's right. Interlocking oppressions, sexism, racism, speciesism. And also we have... Sanatam Kawar. Who's going to be at Helen Hill Chapels this weekend. Did I just say that? (laughs) (laughs) You were about to. (laughs) I'm feeling very echoey in here. What's going on? It's an echo chamber. And also, Dennis Kucinich for president. Support his candidacy. Is he going to be on the show? I wish. Um, Not right now, but... I'd like to have his beautiful wife on. (laughs) Um, Really? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe uh, we can have our people talk to his people. Yeah. Um, Let's see. What else is going on here? So, Scott has brought in a news story. And uh, we're going to start with that, I guess. Might as well. All right, here it's we time go. time for the naked news. Oh, Time wait. for the theme music to be over. This darn zipper just keeps getting stuck. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to do it clothed. Oh, it's back. No, no, it's not. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, we just needed that last bit. Well, this is, there weren't a lot of news stories this uh, last couple of weeks, this last fortnight. So I just picked up this one, which I think probably everyone has seen by now, but let's see. Really? Oh, I'm sure. I bet Megan hasn't seen it. Because we know that stories about male fertility get, you know, top billing on all the uh, right-wing radio stations. So, this is the story. Mother's beef consumption may affect son's fertility. Pregnant women who eat beef seven or more times a week may be producing sons with low sperm counts. Mm. The exact reason for the association <laughs> is not clear. Aha! <laughs> but hormones, pesticides, or other chemicals in beef might affect the development of the testes of the still-developing fetus, speculated the authors of a study in the March 28th issue of Human Reproduction. But expectant mothers and others should weigh the findings judiciously against other evidence, the researchers added. We're not saying that people should stop eating beef, and it's particularly important in pregnancy that women get enough protein. Oh, my God. (laughs) Said study author Shauna Swan, associate chairwoman for research and professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Oh, my God, my hometown, sacrilege. I know. You might have to go and uh, get invited over to dinner, (laughs) talk talk to her about this. Uh, She says that women have to eat protein, although they don't necessarily have to eat meat. If women want to take action, they could try hormone-free beef or organic beef, although it's not proven, or reduce Is that their... not real beef? Uh, <laughs> you could try substitutes You don't have for to beef. eat beef. You can eat hormone-free beef. They can find some other protein. Uh, another doctor, George R. Atia, associate professor and director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, added... Wow. It's very hard to draw conclusions from a single study like this. They used historical data, so mom had to remember what she was eating at the time. Mm. It also makes it difficult to get a conclusion. Six different anabolic hormones are used in cattle in the United States and Canada to simulate, uh, stimulate growth. It doesn't just simulate it. It really works. <laughs> <laughs> Three are natural hormones, uh, estradiol, progesterone, and testosterone. And three are synthetic hormones, xeranol. Trenbolone, where do they get these names? Acetate. <laughs> um, this is a steroid with androgen effects, so uh, that could be useful for fashion mavens. And melangestrol acetate, a progestin. Uh, the use of these hormones has been banned in Europe since 1988. That's the 20th century. In the United States, use is regulated through <laughs> measurable levels of the hormones present in muscle, fat, liver, kidney, and other organs found in meat products. 
According to background information in the study, developing fetuses <laughs> and prepubescent children are most sensitive to exposure to sex steroids, so meat consumption by pregnant women and young children needs to be watched. For this study... It needs to be abolished. Well, it would be nice if the people were more prudent. Abolished. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, you drank coffee before you came inad- here, didn't it's you? It's inadmissible. I think you skipped his coffee, and that's what's going on. <laughs> That was happening. Well, this is the first time that beef consumption. Every time I drive, every time I drive here, people <laughs> try to kill me. There's like cars pulling out in front of me. I, I, was, I was just driving slow today, and there's like these cars like skidding out in front of me, and pedestrians jumping across sidewalks. And I think Scott- they're throwing themselves into the road, Derek. <laughs> Scott would disagree. It's got with me you. really stressed out. <laughs> I have to tell you, <laughs> I understand. Maybe if you weren't racing to the station. I wasn't those, racing. Those I was consciously, even though I was behind even schedule, were late. <laughs> I was consciously driving slowly and enjoying the sights, trying to not get stressed out. And well, the, we should do like a conscientious driving show. You know? Yeah. People do just pull out we're in at the wrong random. Business here. You know? They trust that you will stop. I think I need to make some videos for YouTube of my drives into the station so people can see the evidence for themselves that it's not me. It is rather humorous. Are you, I think Scott wants to finish his story. Oh, I'm sorry. In, well, the, me, in the meantime, grab a glass of water, it was, Derek. It was starting to draw on for a while. I wanted to spice it up with some commentary. Well, I Derek, appreciate go that. sit in the corner for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Putting you in the corner. Because you're right. It's a, very, it's a very dry story. But in any case, uh, apparently, sperm concentration was not related to a mother's consumption of other meat, including veal and pork, hmm. as well as hmm. fish and chicken. Uh, none of the men in the study was infertile, but 18% of those whose mothers ate the most beef had sperm counts classified as, quote, subfertile by the World Health Organization. While they, uh, men whose mothers ate high quantities of beef, were fertile, they may have taken a longer time to conceive, or if we had asked them a year before, they might have been having trouble conceiving, Swan said. They were twice as likely to have visited a doctor because they thought they were having problems, uh, so it's not to say there's no effect on fertility. The study authors don't yet know if anabolic hormones in beef can explain the findings. Most American beef consumed while these women were pregnant was fortified with these hormones, however. Beef also contains residues of pesticides and other industrial chemicals, the study authors said. Beef is bad. In case you didn't know. <laughs> in case you didn't know, beef is bad. <clears throat> these studies. So they're going to look into that again. <laughs> so the only other story there was out there was that uh, someone had recently produced uh, sheep that is actually got human organs. Oh, God. It's a chimera that you can use to kind of produce organs for people. So there's an interesting one, too. A lot of things going on in the animal of, industry this week. Scary <laughs> that was very frightening. There's a f- bullfrog in the, in the um, machine over here. <laughs> oh, Maggie. Do you want to re- tell us about our events? Tell us about this event you wanted to tell us about earlier. All right. So we've got Sanatam Kwar, um, a kirtan singer. Um, I would classify her as. And she has a concert Saturday, March 31st, this Saturday, from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Helen Hills Chapel at Smith College. And you can purchase tickets at Happy Valley Gifts, 229 Main Street, Northampton. And and we also have two tickets to give away. We do. Yes. <gasps> to uh, we, should we have a contest or something? <laughs> Sounds like fun. A raffle. We're gonna have to do some kind of vegan trivia, I think. Vegan trivia. Okay. Um, so we've got two tickets. I if also... anyone can call in and tell us the name of Megan's Bakery, <laughs> 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 we got to make this easy. This is our first contest. Okay, that's pretty easy, but or of. Derek's first pet. What? <laughs> oh my god! You got to make it easy but varied. Okay. Well, she also. I just want to mention that she also um, is having a children's peace hour, which is one to two p.m. Oh, we should give a phone number on Saturday. I'm sorry. Um, it's that is a free event, and that's at First Church's one twenty nine Main Street. And that, again, is on Saturday, 1 to 2 p.m., First Churches, 129 Main Street for children. And a phone number would be 413-658-8834 for any more information. You can go to veganradio.com, and we have uh, a link to that in our show notes. 
Um, the phone number here at the station is 413-585-1033. Call in if you're the first caller that can tell us the name of Megan's Bakery or my first pet cat. <laughs> <laughs> or, Scott, do you have, do you have some trivia that uh, they could question you about? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> it's nothing trivial about me, Dan. I'd, I'd like to question you, actually, over in the corner if you for can a little tell while. Us the last thing that Scott ate, <laughs> that would be the third. Uh, yeah, if someone could tell me, I'd like to know. I don't, I don't really remember. <laughs> I do. I just watched you eat it. Oh, oh, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's tied to the first one. Uh-huh. Okay, so, uh huh. Okay, so the number is five eight five one zero three three. The phone is ringing off the hook. <laughs> And we will play. We have tickets for Sonata McQuar. Volunteers are standing by. All right. And while we wait for our callers to flood the phone lines, um, we have a couple other events to announce. Are you done? Yep. Why are you giving me that look? Um, Because you're bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As we mentioned last time, Leslie Serrieri has a cooking class going wild in the kitchen. It's at Kripalu, April 8th through 13th. That's a vegetarian cooking class. Oh, we got a caller. Our first caller. Hang on, hang on. Oh, keep reading these while I get the phone here. Okay. We also have a farm sanctuary benefit for compassion on April seventh, and on April eighth, we have the vegan society meeting at the emotional. It's called the film we're going to play is the emotional world of farm animals. Um, we start eating at seven o'clock, and then the film will be shown at eight o'clock. And we ask everybody to bring a $2 donation and a vegan dish to pass for six to eight people. And that, again, is this Sunday, April 8th at Evolution Cafe, 22 Chestnut Street in Florence. Okay, and I think we have a caller on the line. Are you there? Hi. Hello. Good morning. So um, you called in to win the tickets? Yes, I did. <laughs> what's your first name? Amy. Amy. Do you? Which question would you like to answer? <laughs> I would like to answer um, the last thing that was eaten. Really? Brave. Someone was watching me. (laughs) I know. Oh, wait. She's out in the lobby. Oh, is she? (laughs) (laughs) Made me look. Um, um, I was thinking you must have had some water, so... Oh, did you have it? Was that the last thing you ate, though? I had water, but I didn't eat it. I actually injected it intravenously. (laughs) Oh, darn. Well, do you, do you know do you know the um, name of the bakery where Megan works or um, owns? Let's see. What what's the first letter it starts with? Oh. 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 <laughs> oh. oh is oh. the first letter and the first word of the name of our bakery. That's right. Oh, say can you see bakery? Oh, say can you see? Oh, no, uh, no I joke. Let's see. Oh gosh, and it's local. It's local. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, Megan. Oh, it's okay. It must be <laughs> a great bakery, though. <laughs> you just have to listen to vegan radio more often. Yes, I will. Um, I'll make that commitment. Let's see. Well, if let's give her a clue about what Scott ate. So Megan's a baker, and she she makes decadent um, vegan baked goods. She brought one in, which is a round disc-shaped <laughs> item oh with chocolate chips in it, and Scott had a bite of it. Oh, gosh. Um... It's a disc-shaped item made out of white flour <laughs> and chocolate oh, chips. Oh, it's a cookie. I'm still trying to think of the name. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, Amy. So um, we've got two tickets here for you. Do you live in Northampton? Yay. Um, no, I don't. I live in Worthington, but I'm, I'm in Northampton today. Right. Well, um, I'm going to take you off the air and get your information, and um, we'll get you hooked up with the tickets. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Mm, that was a good Okay, cookie, Megan, you want to uh, continue? We got some more events. Sunday, April 22nd is the Vegan Bust Fundraiser. And it's going to be an auction type of auction. We're going to auction off, you know, maybe massages, some baked good. Yeah, it's going to be a raffle. Win a date raffles. with Scott. <laughs> oh, yeah, win a date with Scott. Yep. Um, These are $10 raffle tickets. So. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, that's going to be at Evolution as well, and we're trying to raise bus, raise funds for a vegan bus that's going to travel to the Burning Man Festival. And back. And back. 
Yes. And back, and it will be a so vegan outreach education bus Absolutely. on the way and when we're there. And then also after that event is over, then we'll do further vegan outreach with the bus, touring with other guests and such. Yep. And so we're trying to raise funds to get that bus going, and it's going to be a grease bus. Yeah, it's been converted already. It's uh, It takes, you know, any kind of grease. I'm back. <laughs> Did I miss anything? <laughs> We're talking about oh, the vegan bus. Oh, just your vegan bus fundraiser event. Your favorite yes. subject, man. There's going to be an art auction. and. Um, Do you want to give a time for that? It gave a place. It's, it's from 6 to 9 on April 22nd, which is Sunday, a Sunday, Earth Day as well. Yep, at Evolution Cafe. And there's going to be chair massages, vegan baked goods. Did you say all this? You said that. Some art. Art. Perhaps, vegan radio perhaps a Polaroid grid raffle. <laughs> really? Yep. Could, wow, those will be collector's items. And there's going to be other stuff. And if you have anything to donate or you want to be involved, uh, you can contact us through theveganbus.com or veganradio.com. Okay. And the Farm Sanctuary Benefit for Compassion on April 7th, I wasn't... Um, that is in New York City at a yoga studio. You can get the link from our website, veganradio.com. Um it is a fundraiser for Farm Sanctuary, and Moby's going to be there, Russell Simmons, um, it's at the G- Gloria Steinem. Jiva Mukti Yoga Center. <laughs> yep. And, uh, oh, Nellie McKay is going to be playing there. Well, that's exciting. There's a lot of other celebrities, t- Ellie Sheehan. And I think tickets are quite pricey. I think a bit pricey. It's three, a fundraiser. They're $300. Is that true? Yep. Okay, so you, if you're interested, check Vegan Radio show hang out with Moby notes. and Ali Sheedy, man? It's I wor- know. Oh, it's, it's definitely worth it. That'd be insane. It's definitely worth it. It's just, um, this is obviously a classist issue here. <laughs> 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 and all, and all, only the most wealthy will get to go. Well, I'm sure if you want to volunteer and help Farm Sanctuary, you could also get in that way. That's true. If you wanted to volunteer, I think you could you could get in for free. If you let everyone in for free, it wouldn't be a fundraiser. It'd be a free-for-all. That's true. All right. Okay. Wow. That's it for events. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, we're running over our time limit here. Uh, we wanted to officially, uh, s- <laughs> what's the word, Meg? We want to officially um, back Dennis Kucinich as the as presidential, we'll endorse him. How about presidential, endorse him. That's presidential candidate. Sorry, Dennis, we endorsed you. You're endorsed by Vegan Radio, Dennis. Now, uh, Expect to have a lot of hits on your website. Right now, it's not just because he's a vegan either. I mean, that would be that would be great. That'd be one thing. But check out Dennis Kucinich on YouTube or any of those places. Listen to what he's saying. Well, we have say. some sound clips. One, he wants to uh, he wants there, to have man. a peace cabinet. He wants to impeach President Bush, <laughs> which is the greatest thing ever. Um, you know, and finally, a congressman, an actual congressman, is willing to stand up and uh, you know. I don't know. That'd be kind of like impeaching the guy who answers the door. I mean, he doesn't really do anything. Well, it's a start to, you know, dismantle this administration, which is desperately in need of being dismantled. Mm. So you have a clip? I have a clip. I have to figure out where it is. (laughs) (laughs) I have two clips, actually. Um, So this first one is a YouTube video that he um, talks about impeaching the president. My fellow Americans. Go, Dennis. We are in an interesting condition. I love when he says, my fellow Americans. Where we are told to uh, take impeachment off the table and keep on the table a U.S. military attack. See how vegans always do uh, food metaphors? This really (laughs) calls for a new thinking. It calls for us to reconsider very deeply the moment that we're in where our constitution is being trashed where international law is being violated where our hopes and dreams for the education of our children for the health of our people for housing for our veterans are being set aside as we go deeper and deeper into war we need a whole new discussion in America and with your help We're about to have one. This past week in the Congress of the United States, I noted that the administration has threatened aggressive war against Iran. This is a violation of the UN Charter. 
charters are treaties. Article 6 of the Constitution of the United States says that treaties are the law of our land, the supreme law of our land. It's illegal to threaten aggressive war against another nation. Iran has no ability to attack us, and they do not have the intention to attack the United States. We are at a moment in human history where we have to make a decision whether we're going to go deeper into war or whether we are going to take a stand on behalf of peace. And I've determined a long time ago to take that stand on behalf of peace. And I want to enlist you and enroll you in taking that same stand. We cannot let this administration go any deeper into this journey into destroying democratic governance, trashing our Constitution, forgetting the very purpose of this nation. America was never meant to be a nation forever on the warpath. It was meant to be a nation which also had the capacity to promote the general welfare. We need to reevaluate the direction of this administration by looking at its conduct of office, by determining whether it has faithfully followed the laws of our nation. I'm prepared to start that process. I began this week with a speech on the floor of the House, which warned the administration that its actions towards Iran already constitute a case to ask the question about impeachment. So I'm asking you, what do you think? Do you think it's time? Oh, yes. Is it time? It's long past time. It's time to impeach. We also have another clip from Dennis <laughs> um, where he was talking about – it was an interview on another show. He was talking about um, going on Fox News to do a debate. I guess John Edwards or one of the other Democratic candidates uh, didn't want to do a debate on Fox News, and Dennis um, said that they should. Here's that clip. But, you know, I'm a presidential candidate. I have to be willing to go into the lion's den. And, uh, and I'm a vegetarian and a vegan, you know. <laughs> I mean, you go, you know, maybe, maybe the lion doesn't want to eat me because I'm a vegan. I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> well, the lion still wants to eat you, Dennis. <laughs> so we don't know what he was talking about, um, lions not eating vegans, but I um, wanted to put it out there. He was uh, talking about Bill O'Reilly not we chewing know, his head off. We know vegans do taste best. So I would think lions would want to eat us. <laughs> Megan, why are you giving me that look? <laughs> I guess Megan doesn't want to talk about Dennis Kucinich. Next up, we are going to talk about the Inadmissible Comparisons Conference that we went to. And we wanted to thank our friend Audrey. Audrey Hashemeyer, who sponsored us going, and we're very, very grateful. I think we learned learned a lot, and... Got to hobnob with some of the great vegan speakers, like Carol Adams. The intellectuals of the movement. We're hoping it would rub off on us, but I guess it didn't. <laughs> Not quite yet, it's Audrey. It's slowly. Oh, pray, pray for Derek, Audrey, please. I haven't done anything wrong today. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> have you done anything right, kid? That's the question. <laughs> well, I'm going to have a raffle for a new... Uh, co-host if you don't leave me alone <laughs> so what exactly is an inadmissible comparison well that's the que that's the question that the conference posed basically is what is inadmissible or if you're going to compare um the treatment of animals in factory farms and vivisection labs and things to other atrocities such as the holocaust or slavery or the genocide of native americans um, yeah, is it okay? Is that, a, is that okay to do? And if so, or, you know, are there parameters for doing that? Right. You know, if well, I think what I got a lot of was that, you know, if you're going to do that, you damn well better know what you're talking about as far as the the other oppression that you're you basically, you need making to, the comparison with. You need to know your history. So don't make that. That was, I felt like, one of the number one points at the conference was that don't make one of those comparisons unless you've done a lot of reading and research on slavery. 
or the Holocaust. Right, you know, also. so you know what you're talking about. You're not you don't say things, oh, it's just like and then you don't actually have the background to to back it up. Really do your reading. Right. The first speaker was Patrice Jones, who is a radical vegan queer feminist. Is she anything else? Um that's that about covers it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she also owns a uh, or runs a sanctuary for chickens and uh, bird farm animals. That's true. Um, and we have a clip from her. I'm doing my um, dissertation, <laughs> for which I still don't have my PhD, and um, and it's called Brain Trouble: A Psychohistory of Whiteness. And um, what I'm trying to do is uh, respond to the calls of a lot of scholars and activists who said, well, you know, if you, need to, if you want to understand racism, you need to understand what in the world white people are thinking. Because, you know, they're the perpetrators of racism. They're the beneficiaries of racism. Well, what is this idea? I'm white. Where did it come from? What's associated with it, et cetera? So I said there was a whole bunch of scholarship on that at the time. And so I, I set out to, to sort of try and synthesize that scholarship into some kind of a psychohistorical narrative. And um, I thought, you know, probably my story that I'll tell, it'll start maybe a hundred, couple hundred years before Europeans start calling themselves white. Um, and uh, But instead, I keep... Every time I get to a point in history, I find that I can't explain that unless I go a little bit further back, unless I go a little bit further back, unless I go a little bit further back. And the next thing I know, I'm back in prehistory, looking at the intersection of patriarchy, male rule, and pastoralism, animal herding. And I'm figuring out, and I swear to you, I didn't intend to find this out, I was not looking to find this out. Um, I resisted this, but I found out that as best we can tell, speciesism, which is not a joke, um, and sexism co-evolved. Evolved in synchrony with one another. There's no possible way to say which came first. They appear on the historical record together. Uh, they're perpetrated by the same people. They. Um, I don't have time to even tell you what the origin, what the origins might, maybe might be. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're exercised by the same tactics, the same ideologies, the same practices. Let's think, look at those for a second, because they're very relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, it, it, the, the, the process for both women and animals, you ask yourself, well, how, how do you break an animal? Well, you separate her from her natural family, so we're back to separation again, um, and um, you turn her into an object, you elevate yourself, you come up with all kinds of ideas about why this is okay for you to do, and most importantly, because this is the whole point, you control her reproduction. And that's the whole point, or at least was the original whole point, of sexism as well. It's controlling reproduction. It's controlling bodies in order to control their reproduction, but in order to do that, you make the bodies into objects. You come up with all kinds of lies about why it's okay for you to do this. And this is why, from the start, the violence in almost all forms of exploitation is often really weirdly sexualized. Because it's been about controlling sex from the beginning. Now, what we now call racism, because of course, at many, many, many different times in history, uh, different cultural groups have had stereotyped ideas and negative stereotyped ideas about other groups of people and used those ideas to, 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 to excuse the violence that they wanted to perpetrate. But, but what we think of as racism uh, evolved out of that matrix of speciesism and sexism. The, um, the uh, Arab slavers who initiated the trans-Saharan slave trade, which predated and lasted longer than the transatlantic slave trade, and, they, and who were the first people to call themselves white in relation to the um, darker sub-Saharan Africans 
they were enslaving. These were pastoralists, animal herders, from a patriarchal culture. And they mapped many of the ideas onto race. Okay, this whole idea of race as the equivalent of breed in animals, which is biologically absurd, by the way, if you don't know that. Um, but this, this, this comes out of the thinking of men who are used to treating both women and animals as chattel and to controlling their movements specifically for purposes of controlling their reproduction. And so many of the, um, and I just, let me just be clear, just because I said racism grew out of that matrix, that doesn't mean we reduce it to that. It doesn't mean this is more important than that just because it happened to come, none of that. I'm just trying to understand how it works. And um, so, Many of the weird ideas that we have ra about race, many of the weirdly sexualized uh, manifestations that there have been of racism, we can understand a little bit better. Uh, we can understand uh, why dehumanization, making people into animals, is the thing we do um, when we want to uh, uh, put down other people. We can also understand why feminizing groups of people is what we do, and we can understand some of the dynamics of it. Hello? Oh. Here I am. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> so how about that? So that's kind of like a, an explanation of how, um, you know, some of these things grew together and how oppressions are linked, you know, from way back in human history. Yeah, right from the beginning of the whole idea of selfness and otherness, you know. Selfness and otherness. Controlling and uh, manipulating. You know. I, yeah, I just like that, that what she was saying, she didn't start out with some, some people obviously have like their thesis and they're like, I'm setting out to prove this, this thesis. And like she said, she didn't want to come up with that. She didn't want to come up with that, that theory that speciesism and, and sexism co-evolved, but it was like, that's what her research led her to figure out. And I like that, that it was you know, that was that was the research. That's what the research pointed sure. to. Yeah, it's one she thing to assume to, it, another right. to. She wasn't trying to prove that. Discover it, right? Yeah. And it eventually led her to become vegan. So, really, she, that that particular uh, track led her that way. Yeah, well, you know, her her, you know, she started out as a queer activist and a a women's rights activist, you know, and and then eventually, you know, and she was a vegetarian, but she didn't realize. She didn't realize the connection. She would, you know, it, it took her a long time. Yeah, she had a student come up to her in, in one of her classes actually and say, "This is really great. All the, you know, how you're talking about how these oppressions are, you know, um, interlinked. But what about, you know, animals?" And she was like, "Well, yeah, I'm vegetarian." But she's like, "I don't bring that into it. Mm. It just hadn't clicked for her at that point." And something that she said that um, that really stuck with me. She said the question of, well, why didn't I get it? Because we're always asking everybody, all, we're always asking other activists who obviously understand other oppressions, why don't these activists get it about this, about speciesism? Everything else seems to make sense to them and they're down with like all the other struggles. And what she said about herself, she's like, well, why didn't I get it? And she's like, all I can come up with is that being a queer woman, I am part of a group that is oppressed and I don't want to think of myself as being the oppressor. And that's why that's all she can think of is why it didn't come to her at that point is because she couldn't take on that responsibility of that. She was actually an oppressor as well. I think I can relate to that in the sense of, uh, you know, when it was fi finally pointed out to me just how much, you know, my way of thinking or, you know, the way of thinking of people in general is on a very, I don't know, maybe more than subtle level is racist mm -hmm. um, just because of the things we presume and we assume we don't even think about, right. you know, the, the kinds of, uh, you know, access that we have or the, the places we can go and the things we can do and the abilities we have that others don't. And we just put it aside. We don't think about it because it's just part of our lives. It's just part of the matrix we live in. And then when you look at it and see the kinds of uh, violence inherent in communication and the ways that People are excluded uh, just on a very subtle level without even having to be, you know, somebody who's overtly racist. Uh, you know, that kind of thing can really, it can be a, quite a wake-up call to realize that and see 
it makes you start thinking more carefully about how you react right. and how you respond to people and relate. So that's cool for her. Yeah. So, I mean, it is what it boils down to is accepting responsibility that even though you might, you might be oppressed in certain ways, you are also can be oppressing others or oppressing animals by eating them and using their byproducts. Sonata was supposed to call in. I'm not sure if she's going to. She was going to call at 1230. <laughs> okay. Um, but we have plenty of sound clips left to, we're not going to have time to talk about all the people that were at the conference. And we've got a interview with Carol Adams. Yep, which is about 15 minutes long. Maybe that, that might be a good one <clears throat> to, to close with. Yeah. Well, other people that were there. We um, also had Charles Patterson. Do you have any clips? Charles from- Patterson, his clip met an unfortunate end. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> sorry, Charles. Oh, <clears throat> but we have um, Ashanti. Oh, Ashanti's uh, great. Black play, Panther. Play a clip from him. I liked him a lot. Okay, so Ashanti was a Black Panther in the '60s, and now he's also an animal rights activist. He spent some time in jail. At one point, he had, you know, said they were carrying around guns and things, and now, you know, I think now his path is total nonviolence. He had a lot of interesting things to say. They made their point. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and the you know the media kind of cast the whole Black Panther movement as this violent thing, but there was all these other things going on with you know setting up clinics and you know they were doing a lot of great things to help people in the African American communities to rise up, you know, and that was a real threat to the government. It wasn't the threat that you know a few of them had guns. You know, there's obviously you're not going to take on the the government and win with guns, you know. But when you have social programs and build community, that's what really scares the people in power who are trying to keep you oppressed. There's other possibilities of allies that I had not considered before. We just have to be prepared to deal with the difficulties that come with it, you know. So here we, here we go with, like, stuff around race, you know. Um, and, and we joke in, uh, in, like, the black activist circles, uh, there was a, a point where it seemed like some of the young animal uh, defenders would throw fake blood or real blood on people maybe with furs. And we'd be like, don't do that to no black woman in the black community. You might have a fight on your hand you don't recognize. But the, the real issue w- was that what does it mean for poor people to suddenly have access to consumer goods that had such a high status ranking, you know. And we don't want to just go ahead and do certain things. We want to understand what it means. You know, it's the same thing not only around uh, uh, people in the black poor communities around fur, but cars, the cell phones, and all of this stuff that are status. And you just don't ignore it. You try to understand it. And then you look for the key ways of trying to make intervention happen with different ways of looking at it, different ways of thinking about something. So you have your Dick Gregory's and you have your, your other people from even coming out of prison. They come home and all of a sudden mom and pop is fi- fixing a big thing of bacon and eggs, find out that they don't eat bacon and eggs no more. They want to know why, what happened to our child. And now that person has a chance to explain to them why they don't. The interventions happen in so many different ways, you know. And sometimes it even convinces mom and pop who already know they got high blood pressure, diabetes and everything else. Stop eating. Your doctor been telling you for a while. Stop eating and then begin to see how their communities, the supermarkets and everything promote this bad eating. And then to get to see what they actually do to the animals. And for us, it's easy. It's an easy connection to take it back to slavery and say, look at what they did to the Africans. You know, how they boarded them on ships and how they brought them here in a process of manufacturing labor. There's a connection here, you know, and there's ways to make the connections. Sometimes it depends on who, you know, but there's ways. And in them ways, we find more uh, opportunities to bridge build. And it comes at a great time. You know, because there ain't going to be no 60s anymore. I'm clear on that. I love the 60s. The 60s was such a great period. But as I say today, 
the period that we live in now is going to be even greater. Because of what we know and because of what we do, it's going to be even greater. And, and, and mainly, maybe one of the main reasons, because the system is putting a lot of pressure on us to produce even greater movements, to create even more dynamic movements, because we're constantly trying to figure out how it is that it's been able to maintain itself, how we get to look at internal colonialism, how we begin to look at what sexism and, and, and racism and classism and ageism and speciesism really means. You know, we begin to see that this thing around power is really complex, but not so complex that we can't handle it. All right. That's Ashanti Elston. That's it. Power. Power issue. Um, and we just barely have enough time left for the Carol Adams interview. Did you want to say anything about Ashanti? Um, just how he struck me as so... He was just very full of love. He was just, he just had yeah. a very, um, loving personality. Like the place that he was coming from was, you could see that he had, um, I, you know, I, I'm sure all of the oppression and injustices that he has to face, had to face, um, being in jail and also being a black man. And to me, it was clear that he had risen above to a place of, of talking to people with love and coming from a place of love and, and, um, not judgment. Right. And it was really nice. Yeah. I know. I know. Like, you know, the, when you think of black Panther, the way, you know, being from who we are, where we're from, you know, the, and the way media, the media has portrayed the black Panther movement, you know, you, you kind of, or I at least get this vision of like some person who's threatening and, you know, intimidating, intimidating about militant black power and very militant, and, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people probably feel that way about animal rights activists, too, from a lot of the media portrayals. So and to just meet someone who's you know been in that movement and is just so full of love and, you know, has such a great understanding of oppression and, and how it, uh, you know, it, it is part of everything that all different movements are struggling with. It's very powerful. So oh, yeah. I think what we'll do is we we'll have the we'll play some of the Carol Adams uh, interview and then our podcast listeners can hear the whole thing. We're not going to be able to get the whole thing on our show, and I'd like to play a little more of um, Sonatum's music maybe at the end of the show for those who are interested. She's uh, really amazing, and I'm sorry she didn't call in. We should just mention some of the other people that were at the conference before we start the Carol Adams interview. Yep. Um, we have all, all the links on our website, veganradio.com, if you want to learn a lot more about um, the comparisons and about the conference. Uh, yep. That's a good starting place. So we had Karen Davis, who's president of United Poultry Concerns. We had Charles Patterson, who wrote the book um, Treblinka. Eternal Treblinka. Eternal Treblinka, um, comparing animal slavery to the Holocaust. Yeah, there's actually uh, three books on our website. Um, Karen Davis wrote one called um, The Holocaust and the Handmaid's Tale. And then there's the Jewish woman, Roberta Roberta Kalachowski. Yep, she has a group called Jews for Animal Rights and also her own little publishing company with her husband. And she wrote a book that's kind of anti-comparing the Holocaust to... um, Animal suffering, animal suffering, and the Holocaust—the problem with comparisons. Yep. And and you wanted to say something about Andrea? Oh, just I know that she had a couple books. I don't know if you have those listed. Uh, the color of violence, and she's a Native American activist, and talked about um, you know the genocide of the Native Americans. And I think that's about it. Uh, there was also, so PETA a while ago did a exhibit called The Holocaust on Our Plate, which really stirred up a lot of uh, anger from Jewish PETA? people. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Which had like pictures of, you know, Holocaust photographs next to, you know, factory farm investigation photographs and stuff. And uh, so that was something that Roberta was very 
she thought it was very um actually i should play the roberta clip i've heard so much here that i agree with <laughs> you know that it's almost strange to come up and be the opposition in some ways uh a lot of this opposition began as some of you may know uh when uh peter ran its campaign called holocaust on your plate uh it was a real shocker not the campaign but the label holocaust on your plate uh, we have a Yiddish word for it. It's called prust. And prust means vulgar. And that's the way it struck us, uh, as a vulgarity, as a uh, minimizing vulgarity. Uh, lots of Jews out there know how animals suffer. We're not oblivious to it. Uh, and uh, we're, uh, and you, you all know how many Jews are in the animal rights movement. And in fact, up in the upper echelons, some of whom have been Holocaust survivors. Uh, when I saw also a description that we reacted with wrath to this, I don't know who the wrath was. Uh, one or two reporters called uh, me from Jewish papers, and they said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I haven't seen the campaign, but I loathe the title. Uh, I asked an African-American I showed him a picture of a Korean dog being strangled. And I said, how would you feel if this picture was placed next to the lynching of a, a Negro in, in the South uh, by the Ku Klux Klan? And we called it, how's about a lynching on your plate? And he winced, and he said, that's really awful, okay? Comparisons can be deadly. They rob you of your history. And that is what we hear when we hear comparisons. Not just comparison. Uh, no Jew really objects to calling the Armenian massacre a holocaust or what's happening in Darfur or what happened in Rwanda. But how far are you going to get in stretching the word? There's a lot of history behind that word, and I'm going to talk to you about some of the history. Because to many of you, you think the Holocaust is something that happened in the 20th century. And you think that Hitler was just a crazy person who, hey, he was an eccentric. He just came out of wherever, just out of the 20th century. He made it up out of his own head. None of that is true. He didn't make it up. He inherited 2,000 years of infamous libeling, libeling that has been documented, libeling that went on for 2,000 years. Well, I don't, I don't like to say 2,000 years, and I'm going to get back to that. I say 1,700 uh, from the Council of Nicaea. And the reason I say I like to say 1,700 and not 2,000 years is because it's become a fetish to date everything from the crucifixion of Jesus. All right, we're here. Vegan Radio, we're here with Carol Adams. In and New York the, City. The police are coming. I know. Right, as soon as we start. <laughs> um, Carol Adams, we're talking Carol, about... Could you um, briefly, I think a lot of the, it seems like a lot of the foundation behind, behind your feminist animal rights theory is um, what you call the absent referent. Could you explain that in a uh, hundred words? Or yeah. <laughs> Basically that the absent referent is... Uh, theoretical structure for understanding why it is we don't get it about animals. That animals disappear as animals through their oppression. And what is experienced is the end product, the meat, the leather, the fur, um, however it is that the animal has been transformed. And so the animal, him or herself, is absent. Once the animal has been deprived of their own life, their own presence, then that animal's experience is able to be lifted up metaphorically and becomes used in a variety of ways that further distance us from the animal's experience. And how would you make the connection? What would you say about the intersection of, in a hundred words or less, no, um, the intersection of racism, speciesism, and sexism? What would you, what would you say about the, the intersection of those? The interlocking oppressions. Why don't we wait a second? Can, can <laughs> it kind of makes it more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Interlocking oppressions. Well, there are two ways of talking about it. One, we can talk about it as through the structure of the absent referent, that in the intersection of oppressions, 
the absent referent becomes that originating oppression that's lifted up and then is applied to something else. So for instance, the pornographing of women uh, and the sexualizing and exploitative use of women's bodies gets um, lifted up and animals, farmed animals, are sexualized and pornographed in advertisements for meat. So in that example, women are the absent referent, removed from their experience, and instead it's used to sell this commodity, meat, which also has arisen from a, a, another absent referent, the dead animal, or the way images of dead animals or packaged animals, um, the butchered animal is lifted from that, the originating oppression, and used to, uh, in depictions of women, women as meat, women as butchered, beings, women put into um, uh, butchering places or meat places, slaughterhouses in pornographic uh, magazines or advertisements that are kind of pushing the edge so that uh, the originating oppression of, of animals as flesh, as slaughtered flesh, disappears and is applied to women. Um, so that's one example, that's using the absent referent. But another way in would be to say there is a, a system of interlocking oppressions in which speciesism, sexism, and racism all uh, originate from the same mindset, the same attitude toward culture and nature, and it then gets expressed in different ways to different groups, but it's the same originating oppression. Does it have to do with um, creating the other uh, psychologically? That's one way of saying it. One person has talked about it as being a process of objectification, and, and I talk about that in Sexual Politics of Meat, but that what we do is we become subjects to creating others as objects. So my subjectification is at the expense of another's objectification. And um, an example of that from American history is that uh, Toni Morrison theorizes that the white sense of justice and freedom, liberty, this white sense of liberty in the early 19th century was directly related to the lack of freedom that African Americans had. So that we defined our freedom by being able to look at the not free. I was free because I could look at the not free. Um, so white men, they define themselves, they define themselves philosophically through history as that they were uh, neither uh, female nor beast-like. The, the women became representatives of uh, what was not man, uh, filled with body, emotional, uh, closer to animals. So that uh, it's not so much defining the other as defining the not me, and then knowing my meanness through what is not me. I'm not an animal, I'm human. I'm not, I'm not female and messy and, and and ruled by my biology, I'm a white man. Right. Definition through negation, in one sense. Something I struggle with, with um, PETA, I don't know if you want to speak to this or not, um, is how I feel they're advertising. I feel like they do a lot for animals, and I feel like they get the message out there a lot um, about the exploitation of animals, but it seems to me that a lot of times they're using um, they're objectifying women and they're advertising and they're, then they're using women's bodies um, to you know show the objectification of animals but then yet they're objectifying women so and then what they would probably say and um, talking to some people who work for PETA is that hey everybody else is doing it um, we want to get the most bang for the buck we're not doing anything that anybody else isn't doing and so that's true but I just want to know what you would say about that. Well, I think at least three things, <laughs> <laughs> and not more, because since it's a short interview, but uh, um, PETA is an example of the excesses of a single-issue organization that uh, focuses so solely on one goal and sacrifices everything else. So, for instance, um, Domestic violence. A lot of battered women have relation have animal companions. They don't know what to do. Should they leave the animal companion and get their own freedom? Then that puts the animal companion at risk. Do they take the animal companion? Exactly. How do they get free from domestic violence? 
Now, PETA's response would be, in a sense, to go in and rescue the animal because they're a single-issue organization. But then what happens? Then a battered woman might then have another animal companion who she's very close to. Until we stop the violence, we're not going to be able to protect both women and animals. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the oppression of women through sexualized advertisements is not as clear as domestic violence. And so it's harder, in a sense, to have PETA recognize and acknowledge that that's oppression too, that in order to free animals, they are using oppressive methods. Uh, what PETA, in one sense, does is they use two absent reference. They recognize that it is so difficult for animal, farmed animals especially, to be seen as individuals, that it's hard to just have a cow or a chicken or a lamb represent their own need to be seen as beings worthy of respect. So they go to the structure of sexual commodification that creates women as absent reference and lift that structure to try to protect the other absent reference. So in a sense, what they've done is shown exactly the problem with interlocking oppression. They've just done it in a way that they would not acknowledge they have. Does right. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wow. You said there are three things? The I think you've listed two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was that third? <laughs> there was another one, too. Oh, Lord. Um, I have another question if you want to come back to that. And well, I just don't know if I'm going to lose it. Yes. Um, well, it's the literal. The, can the literal ever represent its need to be free? Animals are the literal, become literal in our society. They, uh, they, they disappear then and they become metaphorical. So can the literal ever be lifted up? Uh, this is the problem, that our culture always moves to the metaphor. Uh, we're having this discussion at a conference on inadmissible comparisons, and a comparison is a metaphor. And the minute something becomes metaphorical, has the literal experience been emptied, deprived of its meaning? And in a sense, that's the question we're discussing in the other room, is do we lift, does PETA lift the experience through a metaphor, the experience of the Holocaust, the experience of slavery, the experience of women as, as sex objects, and then empty it of its literal meaning so it can only, serves only as a metaphor to try to communicate the, the situation of animals. It's, it's, it reminds me of moves in conversations that I you know, learn about from vegetarians and vegans. They're so desperate to get people to hear them that they're, you know, oh, I'll try this. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? It doesn't seem to acknowledge how systemic the violence is and that to change systemic violence, we have to have an analysis that looks at what's caused the systemic violence. Mm -hmm. And it is not just what we think about animals that's causing the violence against animals. It's what we think about animals, nature, women, and people of color that's causing the violence against animals. So let's get back to the point where we're addressing the cause so that we can really free all oppressed beings. Yeah, it seems like... I Sorry, Megan. I, well, I have one last now I'm going to lose my train of thought. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Thank you, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just, I wanted to talk about this conference. Um, yeah, it seems like one of the main conclusions that we've been coming to at this conference is that uh, we need to connect with other movements. Have solidarity. Solidarity. And, and what PETA does with the, you know, they're obviously alienating the feminist movement at least and probably a few other ones on the way. Well, that's for sure. I was invited to write a, an article for an anthology on sisterhood. And uh, when other feminists found out that I was doing it, they said to Robin Morgan that uh, how, how could she have invited somebody to write about animal rights because they're the ones who are so sexist and oppressing women. Yeah, and we get equated with PETA. Or, you know, yeah. PETA, like in the, in the mainstream mind, is, is the animal rights movement. It's not... Well, and I think that's one of the reasons, the importance of conferences like this and of just getting the word out that there are a variety of organizations and there are a variety of organizations that if they're not getting it are at least trying to get it. Right. And so um, I admire much that PETA does, but the part when PETA 
becomes the oppressor. I can't support it. Could one I wanted, more question from Megan? One more question. Is there anything that you feel like you just learned at this conference about the interconnecting um, speciesism with racism? I think um, both, uh, well, many speakers have been so helpful. I think I, Andy Smith today, when she was talking about looking, in, instead of looking at the what in a sense is exceptional violence, violence that we're almost creating as a static existence, whether it's uh, the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s or the American slavery that ostensibly ended in 1865, that what we're doing is we're taking forms of exceptional violence and we're trying to say uh, what's happening to animals is like that. And she said what we should be looking at is at the normalized violence because meat-eating is normalized violence because of the absent reference. We're never even calling it violence. We're calling it meat, you know, uh, hamburger and all. There's no sound of violence in those terms. Mm -hmm. Pork, pork chops. You know, it's not the ripped off leg of the, the pig. Right. So that what we have in the, the oppression of animals is normalized violence. So she's arguing, take that normalized violence and let's find corresponding examples of normalized violence in the society and draw connections there and thereby build solidarity. Uh, for instance, looking at the prison industrial complex, which uh, is housing and, and enslaving humans the way the factory farming industrial complex enslaves animals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important move and that would get us away from, in a sense, what the, this lifting of the metaphor from the experience and instead resituate and acknowledge that what we're dealing with is much, much more difficult to remove because it is so uh, imprecated, imprecated into our culture, so deeply a part of cultural institutions. So um, I think that that was a great insight. I think her work around white supremacy and looking at uh, the politics of colonization and recognizing um, when it might be that we're acting more like colonialists in the way we define an issue and that we're appropriating from other uh, experiences rather than to a politics of solidarity that's engaged with others. And her book is The Color of Violence? That's what her anthology. Her anthology. Yeah. All right. Anyway, you've been listening to Vegan Radio. Um, our show notes at veganradio.com. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio. Up next is Jay Deacon with Spirit. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Go vegan.
Vegan Radio. Crunchy on the outside, creamy on the inside, and 100% gristle free.